Alright, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is, believe it or not, episode 200. That is a lot of vowels and consonants. Mr. Jason Lingren is back me. Uh, <laughs> can almost talk this morning back with me. Uh, we're going to tackle sci-fi. I've been wanting to do this one for a long time. When I was young, things like comic books and science fiction got no love from the mainstream or parents. Parents considered comic books for young children or for mentally undeveloped adults. Uh, not kidding. It was literally that way. As we go through the timeline here, you'll see it's like so many of the things. We'll put it in the circles where it developed. We'll show that it was imported originally from Britain into this country with, I don't know, we'll, we'll correct it in a minute, amazing stories or something like that. And then all the prominent sci-fi writers come off that hub or many of them. But the main tell here is we'll get to a point where we're showing even what things like the Academy Awards are doing, giving zero love to sci-fi, uh, which is a bit ironic since movies are basically mostly about telling tales and fantasy. We'll show that there were times when what are called some of the best sci-fi movies of all time went up for awards and they lost to things like Gandhi. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning. And I guess we're hitting a milestone here with 200, right? That's a lot of content, man. And, you know, I was just sitting here as we got going, going over the notes, considering how many ancillary shows we've done. It's got to be thousands and thousands of hours of content out in this world. Yeah. Well, considering all the things that we've both done, there's well over a thousand at least. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, even just coming through the fall and into winter, uh, we're out on so many other episodes here and there. But um, I don't really think we have much. Do we have anything to talk about before we jump into this? Well, I've seen some comments on YouTube, so let's just point out to everyone that we do a secondary show every 6 p.m. EST on Sunday night on my YouTube Secrets of Saturn channel. That is Crow Triple Seven live stream. And in case anyone else isn't aware, I do my own live stream with Wayne McCroy on my Secrets of Saturn channel every Wednesday from 9 to 11 Eastern Time. And Crow frequently joins us there. So to the folks that are saying they didn't see this on the official website, here's an official notice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm always so busy keeping up on the website. It's it's getting to be a thing. There's so much so much to deal with. But basically, we used to do a Sunday night, 6 p.m. New York City time, for those who don't know what EST means, or in other parts of the world where that's not obvious. And we shifted over to Secrets of Saturn on YouTube, which is Jason's channel, because the audience is much larger. So that live stream goes out every Sunday night at 6 p.m., um, basically the same as New York time in the United States. Anyhow, shall we jump in or you got anything else? I guess the last thing we could mention is, of course, on CD Baby, we have a Crow 777 artist page where we have the Shoot the Moon soundtrack available for digital download due to many requests. Yeah, it has all the, the new intro music that, uh, that Alex Michael wrote us, and it has the entire track that was written for Shoot the Moon, the movie. And there's been renewed interest in Shoot the Moon movie. I've been getting a lot of emails. That is on Vimeo On Demand. Uh, anyhow, man, let's jump into 200 and do this thing. All right, science fiction. Here we go. Science fiction was not an accepted literary genre historically and did not come to be accepted openly until the very end of the 20th century, at which point it became an open tool for social programming. We will show the roots of science fiction for what it is and what it was invented to do. 
and tie it to the very same oligarchs and power centers that created the 1960s counterculture, drug culture, and music, as well as the environmental movements such as Earth Day and the World Wildlife Fund. All of these things are designed to lower the human mind and marginalize the place of human beings in this world. In short, the now-accepted science fiction genre was invented to lead human minds into a fantasy-based reality. All right, maybe we should qualify some of this so people don't flip out, because there's going to be a lot of fans of this or fans of that. Um, You can go out, you can get books like Dune, which from my point of view are the apex of this genre. But the reason they're the apex is not just because they're so well-written, and they are very well-written. They're allegorizing uh, aspects of the actual world that we exist in, fantasy and otherwise. But the truth of it is, what's been done here is this genre came to be to start to normalize in the minds of human beings things that don't exist, and space is right at the top of that list. One of the biggest shifts in American culture with the idea of space came in the 60s. And for my part, that started around 1966 in earnest uh, with Star Trek, the television program, which is still held up as this great thing, and it's really not. It's campy. It's cheesy. There's a lot of things we could say about it, and I know that will upset people too, but I mean, let's be honest. This came out the same year as Batman and Robin, which was equally campy, but the difference was is Batman and Robin was meant to be campy. But anyhow, let's dive in unless you want to add something to all that. I think the thing to keep in mind as we start going through this is that fiction and science fiction, but science fiction more so, was used by people as a means of escaping their normal, everyday, probably for some folks, humdrum kind of lifestyles. Some folks might have even had very negative lifestyles, especially if you're talking about the 1800s, before we started having a lot of modernizations to make life a bit better. So you can see how this new genre that's going to come into existence could be picked up and ran with by so many people. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, and, you know, keep in mind, if you pick out some of the most popular so-called sci-fi, and I'm not going to draw a distinction between fantasy and sci-fi. I'm just going to treat them in the same breath. Uh, There is a difference. I understand that. But if you take things like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, I mean, words have meaning. The second book there is named The Two Towers. And even when it went to Hollywood, uh, we got the all-seeing eye and Mordor there, didn't we? These things are used as tools. It's just not obvious to a lot of people. But let's point out that words have meaning here. And of course, the easiest target for this sort of thing, for better or worse, is the younger mind or children. Because if you're working a farm day in, day out you might be attracted to rocket ships and outer space and this high-tech fantasy life that seems so much better than milking the cows, cleaning out the pig troughs, all that sort of thing. Well, there used to be in culture and the part of the world I'm familiar with, there used to be a distinction between what young people did and what adults did. And young people like to play make-believe. And that's where they drew the line. It was like, at some point, you put away your childish things, and that's how this genre was considered. And the reason, I think, mainly for that is it's one thing to be a child playing make-believe, which, you know, I'm not trying to bust on that at all. Um, But the idea back then was, then when you become adult and you deal with things that actually exist in this world, and that has shifted greatly in my lifetime. But let's jump in here. Words, in fact, do have meaning. The first obvious proof of the intent to lead minds into fantasy is the name of the now-accepted genre of science fiction. In the very name of this non-literary genre, we are all informed it is fiction. 
or fantasy-based. Say what you will about the science moniker as it is used here. We should also point out the recent efforts to mask the fiction label by the so-called Sci-Fi, S-C-I-F-I channel, that changed its name and spelling to Sci-Fi, S-Y-F-Y. On March 16, 2009, NBC Universal announced that the Sci-Fi channel was rebranding as Sci-Fi, claiming trademark as the reason. In the modern era, it is quite common to now say sci-fi instead of science fiction. Rebranding is often very effective. The only reason I included this bit is, for one thing, they're in fact masking the word fiction and science in the same breath when you get to what's basically what, SIFI, S-Y-F-I, I'm not even sure. Anyhow, we say sci-fi. But if you go look into this, uh, their claim that the reason they did it was for trademark, it doesn't hold water. They could have trademarked what they originally had if you look at the rules around trademarking. They're trying to act like science fiction was already taken, uh, but it was the sci-fi channel. And so even at that, you'd be branding a channel. Uh, so it's just the whole thing screams to me um, that it's, it's moving the human mind away from the idea of fiction. That's my take on it. Right, and I'm sure they also wanted their own... Oh, what would it be like a trademark and branding and things that they claim is their own so that they can put their own stamp on it that other folks don't have. I mean, I can kind of see the reason there, but it's also going to work in the favor of the fantasy notion of it all. Right. But even just going, even if it wasn't S-Y-F-Y, which is the whole kind of flimsy trademark thing I researched, um, I'm not really accepting the, the trademark reasons they've given. Um, you can understand a company trying to do something unusual with a name you know, for differentiation. But even in the move to sci-fi, which would be S-C-I-F-I, and there are versions of how that's spelled. Sometimes it's hyphenated, which you called me on yesterday. Sometimes it's all run together. Um, it's basically taking the words and masking them. When we don't say a word outright, over time it becomes called this other thing, the, the meaning of those words. It's like slang in the modern dialectic. That's one of the problems with slang. When, all, when, when huge amounts of slang get introduced and then someone along the line wants to research the language, it becomes very difficult because they have to bridge the gap to whatever the words that were replaced were and then take those words and work them backwards to figure out what they meant in the beginning. Right. I'm sure if you jumped back 100 years in time to 1920 and said sci-fi instead of science fiction, I don't think anyone would really even know what the heck you're talking about. Even science fiction itself might stump a few folks. Well, I can give a good example of language. Um, there was a time not too long in the rears when we said things like thee and thou. Um, but people have little understanding of what we lost when we quit saying thou art or thee or you know these, these kinds of ideas. What it got replaced with is you and me and we. And basically what comes along uh, with a strong anchor is personhood. The idea of personhood that we've connected so much on. So you, you can see how even the language that went back in this case, probably most people would consider it biblical. Uh, there was a whole other sense of the communication between two human adults than what we've got now. And we've pointed out endlessly that this language is just facilitating basically versions of admiralty law. And the and thou are out the window. Nobody says the and thou anymore. The first science fiction novel is likely Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, released on January 1st, 1818, while she was all of 20 years old. Jules Verne would be next, releasing tales mixing science and fantasy. But the credit for the creation of science fiction as a literary device almost certainly goes to H.G. Wells. 
Wells was the head of the British intelligence during World War I and is also credited as the so-called spiritual grandfather of the Aquarian Conspiracy by author Daniel Estulin. Wells was mentored by T. H. Huxley, who founded the British Roundtable Intelligence Organization. And, of course, Huxley is known for his own work on a science fiction story called Darwinism. (laughs) The Roundtable is directly tied to the Black Gelfs, also known as the House of Windsor. The current monarchy's Black Gelf connection is the sitting queen through her grandmother, Victoria. The Roundtable membership includes members of the oldest oligarch European families of black nobility. The Venetian black nobility relates or controls a long list of secret societies to include the Thule Society, responsible for the creation of the Nazi Party. Need we say more? Not really, but let's get a couple things out of the way here. Uh, People always get confused. Why is it the black Gelfs? Why is it you know, the black Venetians, why, why black nobility? Um, this is not about color. They earned it. They earned the moniker. There was, in fact, apparently a white Gelf, in other words, more human-like human beings. Uh, the black Gelfs and what they call black nobility earned that moniker for being underhand. And here we go, man. Here's the hub. If you needed to know nothing else about science fiction to back up the claims we're about to make, this paragraph does it. You know, even look at the dating. It's always weird to see the dating. Mary Shelley is first, so she releases it on January, which is a one, on the 1st of January. So the first sci-fi is coming out on 1-1 all the way back in 1818. But uh, as fate would have it, the historical rules recognize H.G. Wells as the guy. And there it is, man. British intelligence. Uh, He's related to Huxley. We've got the whole nonsensical Darwinism thing, which a lot of people are rightly going back to question now and it all relates to um the aquarians conspiracy which jason pointed out estelin wrote about what that basically is is it's a fancy word for talking about the programming of the counterculture and the breaking of the family unit and the drugging the living bejesus out of the generation starting in the 60s which was very successful so here again we're going to tie the whole genre of sci-fi to the very things we've covered. And we're going to do it by showing us the same guys who brought us the 1960s counterculture. And for that matter, the green movement. And science fiction, of course, took a huge leap forward, I guess we could say, during that counterculture revolution. Science fiction really became a thing in the 1960s, far more than it ever had before, even in the 1950s with all the UFO films and all that. Yeah, there are going to be some books that rise to the top. I remember Hobbit was one of the early ones out of the gate during the so-called hippie movement. Uh, Lord of the Rings, of course, followed. There were other ones, some beatnik authors. Um, These guys are all connected to the same crew here. And we're about to talk a little bit about this crew uh, with H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells was a member of the Coefficients, a British oligarch think tank and plan-creating organization. The Roundtable and Coefficients are dedicated to creating a feudal empire led by noble-born and aristocratic families who control technology, learning education as tools, to rule a brave New World-esque population of drugged, degraded slaves, or what we call society. It is also a fact that the Bilderberg Group, who first met in 1954, grew out of the coefficients. 
One of the primary ideas of these oligarchs is that an educated public is problematic, at least it is for them, as it can be historically shown that educated countries do not readily accept oligarchical rulers. They also proved in the 1700s that technological progress can be directly tied to population density. Yeah, I feel like grabbing a line from Alex Michaels' song. You know, are you seeing it here, people? <laughs> I mean, what else do we need to say here? We're showing you the roots of science fiction. We're we're tying it to the British oligarchy, um, to the round table and the coefficients, which actually spawn things like the Bilderberg Group. But the basic goal of all these kind of secrety society things and the aristocrats and basically the old bloodlines, the oligarchs of Europe, is that they want to return to a feudal world, this one world idea. Um, and these things are echoed in other sci-fi, as we've pointed out so many times, Animal Farm, Brave New World, 1984. These are all blueprints for, for where things could, or maybe we could better say they would like to see it head this way. But in the research, all the way back in the 1700s, I could show um, that they'd done enough research about populations to know that a technologically well-educated uh, society would not accept their oligarchical, feudal nonsense. And so look what we see going on in the United States. The children in school today, they're not even being taught cursive writing. The level of math they have in 12th grade is a pittance to what a fifth grader had back in the day. And I'm not saying that day was very long ago either. There's no disputing what we're about to cover here. It's in black and white, and it's on the, the accepted historical record. And the fiction aspect is just one part of all of this. You can see, just with this last point, how the powers that be, or whatever you want to call them, were putting the noose around society's neck once the Industrial Revolution kicked off and technology started marching forward in a serious way. They made sure to have their claws and everything to direct things the way they wanted to go. Well said, but it's not just their claws. I mean, th this is overwhelming full-spectrum control. Let me ask a question. I can't answer for Europe because I didn't grow up there, but here in the United States, is there any person that went to a public school that was not expected to read Animal Farm in and around seventh grade, uh, Brave New World, maybe ninth grade, uh, 1984 is on the offing in there. Why are these same books from the same circle of control systems we're talking about put into the curriculum? So basically, a large percentage of the minds growing up in this part of the world are going to read these basically science fiction blueprints. Do we really have to ask why? I mean, come on, we could put any book on these lists. This is the pre-echoing, isn't it? This is temporarily revealing the hidden hand in a weird way, but there it is. And as we're about to see with the works of H.G. Wells, the power structure will start injecting their ideas into the fiction writings of the late 1800s and forever moving forward. Well, it also starts to kind of point out a thing most people overlook of how controlled publishing was. And I've pointed it out many times. The movie Citizen Kane voted the best. Court, they got to get the Kane bloodline idea in there. Um, one of the one of the parts of that storyline is we're going to go find the 12 most influential papers in the country, buy them up so we control the thought process and communication. That's echoing actually factually a thing that happened in or around 1913 in the United States, where the banking concerns in New York did exactly that, went out, hired high-ranking paper men to go find the 12 most influential papers and buy them. So, you know, this next bullet point is going to get into a little more publishing, but it shows how controlled the communication centers have always been in the modern era. 
And don't forget also that that may have been one way to do things, but they figured out once you get into the 20th century that it's easier just to own everything from the top down. And that is exactly where we're at today, where all the news is, at least most of it, canned and prepackaged and ready to go, sent to all of the major networks. And a lot of that does include what's left of the print world, too. There is no fourth estate. There never has been in the modern era. It's a farce. And it's a bit like the, the election we're about to have, where people are going to go out and vote and think their vote is doing something. When we were all told in basically junior high school that your vote doesn't seat a president, people have problems with these things. Um, it's the Electoral College, but the, these ideas that we're talking about are no different. We, we start to operate in a way where we just pretend that the way we think it is or the way we want it to be is the way it is. But we're here to show um, it's not the case. These people did exactly what Jason said. They bought all the things that mattered because they could afford to do so. And part of that was publishing up here in the modern age. I think Jason feels like maybe five corporations own all media, news, music, all that matters. I think it's closer to two corporations, but we both agree it really doesn't matter because the board members of every one of those corporations, whether they be two or five, are in the Club of Rome, are in the Trilateral Commission, are in the CFR. Um, and in a recent episode, I pointed out one of the recent heads of the CFR was actually quoted in an interview as saying the TFR doesn't run the world. That's ridiculous. Then he chuckles and says the TFR does or the CFR does that. And he's the head of the CFR. You can see what we're talking about here. And it doesn't really matter when you're talking about so few organizations controlling the narrative. They're all in bed with each other anyway. At that high level, they're all jumping in and out of all these organizations that are pushing the narrative they want to. So at this point, it just doesn't matter how few organizations technically own under these giant umbrella corporations just about everything to do with media. Well, it's it's such a farce on the face of it. Think of the idea of... Uh, what do they call monopoly, um, antitrust or something like that? I forget. Yes. The, one of the last big cases was Microsoft comes out and it forced everyone to use Internet Explorer, knocking Netscape out and getting away with it. But the idea I'm pointing out here is everyone agrees monopolies are bad. When I was younger, I don't know whether it was the 70s or the 80s, what we called Ma Bell, the telephone systems. Um, they were sued and forced to let go of their monopoly. So what we're looking at here is this power structure that rightly points out the black nobility. This is why they're damn black. Because on the one hand, they're rightly pointing out that monopoly is wrong. It creates problems and one-sidedness and control at a level that's unstoppable. And yet what they're doing behind the scenes is forming a monopoly. That's the whole one world idea, the ultimate monopoly, the whole damn enchilada, the plate it sits on, the table it sits on, the restaurant that holds it in the corporation that owns every other restaurant. It's the ultimate monopoly. And the whole antitrust thing is a bit of a joke, too, because when they did it to the Rockefeller organization with his standard oil company, they broke it up into all these little ones. And in fact, the Rockefellers profited even more so. So you see how the game is rigged right from the top down. No doubt. And what you just mentioned is openly on the acceptable mainstream timeline now that uh, that all went down and he ended up benefiting even more. But we all know that the oil companies are just another form of monopoly. In the late 1800s, H.G. Wells wrote a number of novels and stories that were pushed out to the public by the black nobility owned Paul Mall Gazette to include the Astor family. These same old oligarch families would later fund and sponsor Adolf Hitler. This would include both British and American oligarchs. 
War of the Worlds came to be the most important title from Wells at this time, and the social programming began. Imaginary Martians invade the Earth, and insignificant man is helpless until the smallest of things, germs, win the day. Right, let's write a story that's going to go to the top of the pops that is all about things that don't exist in this world, but the narrative will be placed in every mind. And let's not forget, um, I didn't take the time to, to write down, is this an 1800s one, War of the Worlds? Do you know, Jason? Yes. So 1800s, War of the Worlds, uh, you know, it's a smash hit. It's all fantasy-based. It's all programming the idea that human beings are helpless. And it's these little tiny germs that, you know, the smallest thing around, which is debatable, um, end up winning the day. But the point here is how many times has that story been retold? If we took the time to go um, Orson Welles, the whole Orson Welles nonsense. He does Orson Welles does War of the Worlds on the radios with 24 or 25 and supposedly calls all kinds of bedlam across the country. And he basically gets hauled into Congress, gets his hand slapped. But this is the same damn story being repurposed. Now let's come up to the modern era. Who is it? Is that a Spielberg, the Tom Cruise version of this? I don't remember. Um, but these ideas are just echoed over and over and over. And it really doesn't matter how high-minded a human being you are. To be exposed to these things continuously is to have them normalized at some level. And I'm here to tell you that it's not really about trying to get you to believe Martians are on Mars. That's part of it for the people who are that gullible. The real story here is that human beings are insignificant, that they're just like little specks of dust in this vast universe kind of idea. So War of the Worlds was first serialized in 1897 by Pearson's Magazine in the United Kingdom and by Cosmopolitan Magazine in the United States. The novel's first appearance in hardcover was in 1898 from publisher William Heinemann of London, and he wrote it between 1895 and 1897. And of course, it's one of the earliest stories to detail a conflict between mankind and an extraterrestrial race. And this concept, of course, will get recycled, oh, goodness knows how many times as the decades start rolling by. Well, there's another point we can illustrate here since we're talking about the 1800s. Anyone can go back. Look at the level of education, the level of speech, the number of languages an educated pe person speaks, um, the quality of things as simple as furniture or things that are built by craftsmen, uh, the level of schooling that an educated person is going through. We have fallen so damn far from just the point at which Wells wrote this book. And these things are related, and it's hard to make that case to people because they refuse to draw the line. They think it's just this grand coincidence that right now our school basically pumps out people that are so marginally educated as to be ridiculous. Basically, in the day we live in, education comes down to the individual. They're going to learn what they're going to learn. But if they want to know some things, they've got to educate themselves. So how did we fall? How can we look back at a time like the 1800s and understand that a human being was much higher minded uh, from where we find ourselves now? And the whole sci-fi narrative and these books that we're pointing out, uh, they're part and parcel. They're one little cog in the wheel of the effort to do just exactly what I described. And War of the Worlds, of course, will have a second impact in a very large way once the golden age of radio kicks off, but we'll be getting there momentarily. Much of science fiction seeks to reduce the importance of human beings in this world, lead minds into fantasy, and normalize unbelievable things until they become accepted and part of culture. Beam me up, Scotty, while the Force is with me. 
This is where the fantastic dumbing down begins, as feudal oligarchs cannot have a well-educated, reality-based society if feudal reign is to follow. Keep in mind, actual fact-based science needs to go away as well, along with technological control. Hey China, how would you like to become the center of all manufactured things to include technology? The United States has other plans now. Just ask the nobility if any of this is correct. And I'll make a fine point about uh, what they learned in the 1700s about uh, a well-educated, technologically adept society not accepting their feudal oligarch nonsense. We all use, we're probably the pinnacle in the United States of technology use. How many people out there know how it works? You know, we did this on a recent show where I was pointing out, can you make a car? If you had to, knowing what you know, could you make a car? Uh, most people could not. My point here is we all use this technology for the vast majority of it of us. If it breaks, there's no way in hell we can fix it. And this points to what we're saying. And that's just ancillary to the fact that all the manufacturing and the place that developed all this technology, the United States or most of it, this has all been ported over to China now. Um, and we pointed out time again, it's because it's a communist nation that now has a dictator at the helm and they can snap their fingers and do what they want. Um, unfortunately for them, us silly Americans still have these silly dreams of freedom and this idea called the American dream. That has to be pushed down to the bottom of the wastebasket before all these plans can really chug forward. But these, these ideas we're expressing, think about what's being pointed out here. But a lot of people are always asking about authors. Um, in the case of the research that we've done here, there are a few um, that are very good. Uh, Daniel Estelin, uh, I haven't read everything of his, but his Tavistock work and other things cover exactly, well, not exactly, but they do delve into the things that we're pointing out here. There's another one, uh, another author named Hoffman. His mentor actually cracked what I consider to be uh, the keystone ideas that allow us to see through all the nonsense. Hoffman, uh, from my point of view, who knows the movie They Live? You know the little lenses that allow people to see in They Live? They're called Hoffman lenses. I'm reasonably sure they were named after that author. I can't remember his first name, but people can find him. His mentor was named Downard. Now, Downard, um, you can't get his writings anymore. He's the one who cracked... Every name matters, um, the numbers going on, the place that it occurs, all this. He's the guy, from my point of view, who cracked all that. And what, there is one of his books on Amazon. It goes, it's not even that big a book. It goes for four or 500 bucks. Um, but people are always asking for authors. So there's a couple breadcrumbs if they really want to dig in. All right, let's talk about something that really mattered for quite some time, but has pretty much faded into obscurity today. And that's pulp magazines, also known as the pulps. These were inexpensive fiction magazines that were published from 1896 and ran into the late 1950s. The term pulp derives from the cheap wood pulp paper on which the magazines were printed. In contrast, magazines that were printed on higher quality paper were called glossies or slicks. The typical pulp magazine had 128 pages. They were 7 inches wide by 10 inches high and half an inch thick with ragged, untrimmed edges. The pulps gave rise to the term pulp fiction in reference to run-of-the-mill, low-quality literature. Pulps were the successors to the penny dreadfuls, dime novels, and short fiction magazines of the 19th century. 
Although many respected writers had written for the pulps, the publications were best known for their lurid, exploitative, and sensational subject matter. Modern superhero comic books are sometimes considered descendants of hero pulps. Pulp magazines often featured illustrated novel-length stories of heroic characters, such as Flash Gordon, The Shadow, Doc Savage, and The Phantom Detective. Although a lot of their stories were of the detective variety, the pulps most assuredly contributed to the availability of science fiction literature, especially beyond the normal novel format. Due to their inexpensive nature, they were quite a success with young, working-class folks, just as comic books would come to be in the years ahead. The previously mentioned Paul Mall Gazette was a very popular pulp in its time. Yeah, so, I mean, just the, the middle of this, it shows they're, they're, it was cheap, it was low quality, and it wasn't just the paper they were talking about. The idea extended to the content that was in those pages, but look where we are now. I mean, what, three-quarters of the movies that are on top of the pops these days are basically these superheroes. You know, what do we got? Flash Gordon in here. Doc Savage has kind of fallen away, but um, you can see even the shadow has made it show up. So we've had a complete reversal from this period of time when this was low-quality stuff with low-quality content printed on it. That's how it was viewed. This was the beginnings. Let's start talking about some other authors of extreme significance in this whole interesting and non-fictionalized story. Edgar Rice Burroughs, who lived from September 1st, 1875 until March 19th, 1950. He was an American fiction writer who is best known for his celebrated and quite prolific output in the adventure and science fiction genres. Among the most well-known of his creations are the jungle hero Tarzan, the heroic Mars adventurer John Carter, and the fictional landmass within the Earth known as Pellucidar. Showing what kind of impact fiction can have on society, Burroughs' California Ranch is now the center of the Tarzana neighborhood in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, yeah even name a place after him but i mean let's let's be real here uh tarzan and john carter those are recently top of the pops movies although john carter didn't do that well it was still a big kind of epic movie to go out and tarzan gets redone every so many years to this date matter of fact i think it's been what two maybe three since the last tarzan came out uh these things don't go away uh edgar rice burroughs you can look them up try to remember that kind of september Aiming his work at the pulps, Burroughs had his first story, Under the Moons of Mars, serialized by Frank Muncie in the February to July 1912 issues of The All Story, published under the name Norman Bean, to protect his reputation as a writer. Under the Moons of Mars inaugurated the Barsoom series and earned Burroughs $400 at the time, which is approximately ten dollars to $11,000 today. It was first published as a book by A.C. McClurg of Chicago in 1917, entitled A Princess of Mars, after three Barsoom sequels had appeared as serials and McClurg had published the first four serial Tarzan novels as books. Burroughs took up writing full-time soon afterwards, and by the time Under the Moons of Mars had finished its run, he had completed two novels including Tarzan of the Apes, published from October of 1912 in one of his most successful series. Burroughs also wrote popular science fiction and fantasy stories involving adventurers from Earth being transported to various planets, quite often Barsoom, which is Burroughs' fictional name for Mars, and Amtor, his fictional name for Venus, as well as Lost Islands and Into the Interior of the Hollow Earth in his Pellucidar stories. 
Burroughs also wrote westerns and historical romances. Besides those published in All Story, many of his stories were published in the Argosy magazine. Tarzan was a cultural sensation when introduced. Burroughs was determined to capitalize on Tarzan's popularity in every way possible, a path that George Lucas would follow with the Star Wars series decades later. Burroughs planned to exploit the character of Tarzan through several different media, including a syndicated Tarzan comic strip, movies, and merchandise. Experts in the field at the time advised against this course of action, stating that the different media would just end up competing against each other. Burroughs went ahead regardless and proved the experts wrong, as the public wanted Tarzan in whatever fashion that they could get it. Tarzan remains one of the most successful fictional characters even to this day, and is considered a cultural icon. Burroughs was in his late 60s and happened to be in Honolulu at the time of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Go figure. Despite his age, he applied for and received permission to become a war correspondent, becoming one of the oldest United States war correspondents during World War II. All right, so the sci-fi guy is at Pearl Harbor and becomes a war correspondent. Of course, how many times have we seen it? But at the beginning of this long bullet point, you're told everything you need to know. He gets published in the All Story, and he has to go under a pseudonym, Norman Bean. And why is he doing it? To protect his reputation as a writer from writing basically what was considered trash at the time, to put a fine point on it. I really don't know what else we need to add here, but you can see how far back this has all happened. The early 1900s, we're still remaking these stories lock, stock, and barrel every two, three, four, five years. Another author worth mentioning here is Philip Francis Nolan. He lived from November 13, 1888 until February 1st of 1940. He was an American science fiction author, best known as the creator of the character and storyline of Buck Rogers, first appearing in the novella Armageddon 2419 AD. Buck Rogers then began appearing across multiple formats for many decades. In Armageddon 2419 AD, published in the August 1928 issue of the pulp magazine Amazing Stories, the character's given name was Anthony. A sequel, The Air Lords of Han, was published in the March 1929 issue. The story was then adapted into a comic strip, changing the character's name from Anthony to Buck. The strip made its first newspaper appearance on January 7, 1929. Later adaptations included Radio in 1932, a film serial, a late 1970s television series with the pilot episode shown in movie theaters first, and another name change is that Buck's first name is William in this iteration. The Buck Rogers strip was popular enough to inspire other newspaper syndicates to launch their own science fiction strips. The most famous of these imitators was Flash Gordon. Others included Tom Swift, beginning in 1930, Brick Bradford, first appearing in 1933, Don Dixon and the Hidden Empire, first appearing in 1935, and John Carter of Mars, first appearing in 1941. The adventures of Buck Rogers in comic strips, movies, radio, and television became an important part of American popular culture. It was on January 22, 1930, that Buck Rogers first ventured into space aboard a rocket ship in his fifth newspaper comic story, Tiger Men from Mars. This popular phenomenon paralleled the development of space technology in the 20th century and introduced Americans to outer space as a familiar environment for swashbuckling adventures. Buck Rogers has been credited with bringing into popular media the concept of space exploration, following the sci-fi ground laid down by Jules Verne 
H.G. Wells, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. As astonishing as it may seem, what you're looking at here is in 1930, they're doing the tee-up to start to morph what they're going to paint space as in the minds of the world. That seems a bit much to take, but it is what it is. This is January 22, 1930, when Buck Rogers really first starts. And, and by the way, notice it's always Mars back in the day. You know, why don't you ever hear about all these other planets? And, you know, Mars was the one that was capitalized by H.G. Wells back in the 1800s. That was the one that was in the forefront of minds as having people on it. And, you know, the astronomers are saying, oh, look, there's canals on Mars. They would do that later. My point here is, as we went into the so-called space age in the 60s, the programming was full tilt. And 2001 is case in point. There's more science fiction, which actually gets shown to be one of the best pictures of all times these days. And what it's doing is putting in place the tech to pull off a fake moon landing and inserting into the minds of human beings what space will look like uh, as all these things are doing. You know, I had no idea until I started researching this just how influential the character of Buck Rogers was. And I was also amused to learn that originally the character is from the Wyoming Valley, which is where I'm from in Pennsylvania. Well, the generation behind me, my parents, Buck Rogers was it. That was the main one. But by the way, Looney Tunes does, you know, took off on this too. What's this? Duck Dodgers? Duck Dodgers in the 24 and a half century. There you go. Um, they're just doing a re-echo of this. And what's that cartoon all about? It's about showing the children what space is. This is what space is. Look, here's our fake space, but it's really not fake. This is what space is. Besides the printed word, the proliferation of a radio as a societal norm also helped with science fiction's rise to prominence. The first science fiction old-time radio shows were primarily adventure serial shows that were intended for the youth. Two of the most notable of these were Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. These shows tended to glamorize mainstream scientific progress to a certain degree and featured larger-than-life heroes in primary roles. The pulps played their part here as well, with actors moving in both mediums to ply their trade, and some of the pulps even began producing their own stories on the airwaves. Right. One that goes way back is the shadow. But there's a common denominator to when these things are first beginning to be introduced. It's all almost detective-y, right? There's the good guy catching the bad guys. Uh, that drives it for quite a while, actually up into the modern era. Um, that's usually the, you know, the pitting, the, the, the antagonists. That's what they're about in these storylines. There's a commonality there if you go back and look. But I think one of the earliest may be the shadow. Um, and that went on for quite a while and had a massive impact on the generations that followed maybe the greatest generation? Radio was slow to produce any series that would be dedicated to a serious adult audience. The first adult-oriented science fiction radio show didn't begin airing until 1950, although there were some attempts at more serious science fiction on Escape, Suspense, Lights Out, and others. An earnest attempt in sort of science fiction radio shows includes a little-known show called Latitude Zero from 1941. Some say that Beyond Tomorrow, written by Robert Heinlein, was the first science fiction show aimed for adults, with the first episode created on February 23, 1950. However, Beyond Tomorrow was dropped after only three episodes, and the credit for the first adult science fiction series is usually given to 2000+, plus, which began airing on March 15, 1950. The shows were written in-house from original material, as opposed to being from science fiction authors or classic stories. Many episodes revolved around the follies of space travel, science, and technology. 
So on the 50s, you know, there's a real sense that we're coming to the space age. Even look at the cars, you know, they got their little rocket fins on all the cars. But Robert Hyland is the center of what we're talking about now, and he's going to show up prominently. But this is really where the pedal starts getting pushed to the metal in the 1950s. This is a time in American culture where all of a sudden everything has changed. Everyone's got some degree of money for the most part. If you're in the middle class, only the father needs to work in most cases to hold down a household. Everyone has a car. The freeways are being put in. So now people are traveling vast distances in this country. It's a big sweep forward from the kind of nuts and bolts existence that that came before. And this is where we see sci-fi really starting to sink its hooks in. Well, of course, once we get into the 1950s, we're starting to talk about what they call the space age. But there are a lot of other things going on around this time that will contribute to that as well. But it's amazing once you see decade by decade how this stuff built up to the point where sci-fi never took over, but it became a mainstay in the household by, say, the 1960s. Right. But even then, it wasn't getting any respect. You know, it was pretty much a childish thing or a lackadaisical adult thing. You know, the adults weren't taken seriously. If you collected comics as an adult back then, you were really looked down on. These things had no value. But you see, what's going on here, too, as kind of a sub-subscript, is the idea that science can do anything. And so the next logical thing is clearly we got to go to space. We've been everywhere on this world, so we're going to the moon. And that is what's fueling the space age. And even the design of cars and products and even things like hotels, you will see the space theme being heavily uh, incorporated. Although science fiction was expanding into more adult-oriented stories in the 1950s, science fiction didn't just up and abandon the youth market. Radio shows like Planet Man, Space Patrol, Captain Star, and Tom Corbett were there to take the young minds into the dawning space age. These newer science fiction youth radio programs followed a similar format to their old-time radio predecessors of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Ladles and jelly spoons, we are going to space, and Buck Rogers proved it. Just hang out a little while, 1966 is on the way, and Captain Kirk will show you what it looks like so you all know what space is. Do you see it, people? Do you see it? I'm here to tell you that I don't accept the descriptions of space. I'm here to tell you that we can show that sci-fi has come from these same old black oligarchs, some of the oldest banking and European bloodlines. That's going to bring hour one to a close. In hour two, we're going to absolutely go long for episode 200. We have so much to pack in, and some of it had to be pushed forward. Uh, we, we still deal with censorship in the same way. And think about that as a side note. Why is there a need for censorship all of a sudden? Think of not too many years ago when all you had was a landline in your home. Were bad things done during the age of the telephone in the home? Well, how come the telephone wasn't censored? You see, you can see the false dichotomy that's coming up. And whenever censorship rears its ugly black beast eyes, what you are looking at is the attempt to silence things that go against this kind of feudal oligarchy that's being pushed for that people like to call the one world order. Anything you want to add before we queue up for hour two, Jason? Well, of course, in that aspect of the timeline, we get up to the 1950s, but we're going to go back in time in hour two because we still have to talk more about the printed word as well as film just turned into this huge thing throughout the decades. And it goes all the way back to the dawning of the 20th century. 
That's right. And we're through the looking glass now. These things that would get no respect, not even in Hollywood, not even at the Academy Awards, are now front and center. And some of the biggest franchises and driving culture, worldwide culture at this point, and it's all science fiction. But we've also got to outline amazing stories which is the hub of all these writers. And so much of what we talk about, it goes back to the same things. It was this group of people. It is these little secret societies. Well, amazing stories or whatever the heck it's called, we'll define it in hour two. We will show that is the epicenter of where things really start to blow out. We'll show that all the writers can be related, all the big writers that we know of, including the writer of Dune, Herbert, believe it or not can all be attributed to these circles. And of course, it all goes back to intelligence. It's just, man, it's a tangled web that has been woven here. But we hope you'll join us for hour two of episode 200 at crow 7 radiocom That's C-R-R-O-W 777radio.com. This episode is almost certainly going to go long, and we're going to say a lot of things in hour two um, that just don't seem to fly anymore in hour one uh, because of the censorship I was mentioning. These are not things that allow, well, let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. In the 1700s, the black oligarch families figured out that a well-educated, common-sense, technologically advanced society will not accept this kind of feudal nonsense. That's what this is about, man. So join us for hour two at crow 7 radiocom Cheers. <laughs>